Hello, I'm Joshua Graceberg. And I'm Jacob Friedman. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful, definitely non-Twitter commentary and a side helping of comedy. We got two stories from the week and an interview coming right up. So our first story is that the U.S. is formally pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty. The treaty basically said that the 30-plus members, including the U.S., most of Europe, and Russia, could fly unmanned aircraft over each other's territory in order to stop confrontations over what a country is doing with its military. So, number one question. Why? The U.S. has been the Open Skies Treaty for a very long time. Now, as a lame duck president... President Trump is removing us from this treaty. I just don't I just don't see any practical reasoning behind it. What do you think, Jacob? We already knew that this is going to happen. Yeah, there is no real reason. I mean, the only reason I could I could really think of is that he needs to shore up his relationship with Russia because of whatever debt he owes, but I, I don't know, man. What really gets me out of the story is that when Trump fired Esper and he replaced the top brass at the defense department with literal conspiracy theorists like Cash Patel, who worked on the Devin Nunes and worked on the, the Russia memo and Brigadier General Anthony Tata, who, who basically said that Obama was like a terrorist or something. Th- these guys are now at the top levels of the Pentagon and they're literal, and they're literal conspiracy theorists. They are literally spewing nonsense. They've, their records have shown that. And we, we knew that their appointments were bad news, but now we know what they're really doing with pulling troops from Iraq and Afghanistan, and now this. It's just tearing down the rest of the house before Biden can really bring it back up again. The aircraft we have used for almost 30 years to conduct a reconnaissance that has been done in the name of transparency, peace and stability and security, Mark Esper and the Defense Department canceled orders of new aircraft over the summer to replace the older Yeah. And now and now we're hearing that the Defense Department under Patel and Tata and whoever else, they're scrapping the old parts. They're scrapping the old drones, the old aircraft. Why? Why are they doing this? And that's why I said that they're just trying to make it hard for Biden. If Biden wants to go back into the the treaty when he comes into office, he can't he's going to have to wait until they get new planes, new aircraft. Yep. And that's what I wait until industry catches up. Yeah, yeah. So remember, everyone, if there's an international incident that could have been prevented with the treaty, thank the pro-military President Trump, the strong man who wanted to get out of foreign wars, who wanted to end the entanglements, who wanted to... Our second and final story is on whatever the heck has been happening with the Middle East. So it's been, it's been, it's been a strange week. First, the reports that... Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went to Saudi Arabia, met with MBS and Pompeo, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And apparently there was a normalization deal that Pompeo wanted to do, a la UAE and Sudan, that would basically allow for actual cooperation out in the open between the Arab states and Israel. But it failed. Apparently, inner Saudi Arabia politics have shot down the deal for now and a and some people think that MBS just wants to save something for Biden to do to get to get on his good side because there's Khashoggi and the oil and the terrorism and the 
But this was a start. It was something that no one expected. It happened in the dead of night. But what could they have been discussing? Well, now we might have an answer. We then heard a few days ago that Iran's head scientist, this guy was killed in an ambush outside of Tehran. This also came as there was an al-Qaeda leader who was killed in a few weeks before in Tehran. Iran says that this specific one that killed the nuclear scientist, it was Israel's doing. It was Mossad. And the hardliners in Iran, one of them called for Haifa, the port city in Israel, to be bombed in retaliation. Israel and the U.S., both governments have denied any involvement. They don't. They say they don't know what, who did it or what happened. And the reaction from the U.S., inside the U.S., not just Pompeo or anyone else, but actually in the U.S. is interesting. John Brennan, who was CIA director under Obama, he said that this was reckless. It was completely ridiculous to do it, whoever did it. Some of the Iran hawks, like uh, Ted Cruz, for instance, they're now cheering on the grave of the, of the nuclear scientists. To be fair, Jacob, listen, we don't, there's a lot that we don't know, right? For example, right. although Iran is currently accusing the Mossad, the Israeli Mossad, of doing this, we don't know for a fact what exactly happened. We don't know for a fact even the status of uh, this Iranian nuclear scientist within the Iranian nuclear program, for all we know, he could have been vitally important. Now, well, this yeah, is no... Maybe Bibi made a whole speech like two years ago, basically outlining what they stole from the early 2000s Iranian nuclear program, and that guy was the head of it, like literally the top guy. Yeah, right. But, you know, this is obviously this is no Qasem, this is obviously no Qasem Soleimani here. But the Iranian nuclear program is, you know, it's definitely a friend in the Middle East. And you see that because countries that previously didn't want anything to do with Israel are now starting to recognize Israel and are starting to normalize relations. Well, that's because of Iran. Iran but, becoming... but here's the thing. This killing is not going to change anything. Why? It's not going to hurt Iran's development. Well, maybe there will not... be some short-term economic, maybe there will be some short-term trauma in nuclear short-term development, tra- but I agree, there won't be too many long-term. No, no, no. It's, not, it's nowhere near like the cyber attack of Sputnext or, the, or anything else. I mean, it's actually really hard to really discuss this because it clearly, it most likely is Israel. And honestly, I'm, fi- I'm actually fine with them doing this. They do this, they do this a lot, and, I don't really, and I'm actually for it. I mean... Iran, Iran cannot be that stupid. Rouhani cannot be that stupid as to actually try to bomb Haifa. They can't be that stupid as to broke a war. Trump can't be that stupid to broke a war. Bibi knows that Biden is going to be knocking on his door if he starts going to war with Iran. That's not going to happen. I mean, this is why the, the meeting with MBS got so much attention days after it happened, because we don't know what was said. We don't know what was said, except for a hint of normalization deal. There really is no clear... Winner here, there's no, there, there, I mean, it's a cold war. We know this, we've known this for years. It is Saudi Arabia versus Iran. And whatever, it's whatever. pretty much, it's really a lot, a lot of Middle Eastern countries versus Iran. Yeah, but, you know, but the big thing is that Saudi Arabia versus Iran because Saudi Arabia is like the big Gulf state. It's like the biggest, the biggest military, however dysfunctional, the biggest economy, one of the biggest economies, like the largest actual people. And I hate, hate a lot of what Saudi Arabia does. I hate them for Khashoggi. I hate I hate the crown prince for for the corruption. I, I you know the, I mean the enemy that my enemy is my friend. But even though NBS is now coming to the table and Biden Biden should in there and say if you don't want us to cut off our aid, cut off ties to all the terrorists, increase your renewable energy, stop killing journalists, mandate reforms. I mean obviously 
I'm not expecting a lot of this to work. You're very, very, this is definitely a very strong case of easily said than done because Saudi Arabia has been, has, it's pretty much functioned this way for hundreds and hundreds of years. To suggest reform from the Biden administration will be almost impossible to do. Well, well, then again, MBS is really pushing the boundary already. I mean, the House of Saud and the um, religious clerics, they, they, the deal that they've had for decades at this point, uh, political legitimacy and religious legitimacy, it's now cracking. It's cracking under the modernization. It's cracking under MBS's rise to power. I won't be surprised if Saudi Arabia does change quicker than most of the Middle East. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if it, um, that's not, uh, because I mean, if 20, the 2030 vision about the, you know, getting off of oil, prioritizing oil, getting off of um, the reliance on oil, that honestly could do the trick because the only reason any of these, any of the Gulf states have any relevance whatsoever, at least in the beginning was oil. I mean, some like UAE have, have transitioned to business, but it's not enough. It's not, it's not going to be enough in a, in a post-pandemic, you know, green world. I don't know. I find it unlikely that after centuries and centuries of the traditions that Saudi Arabia have upkept for thick and thin, I really doubt that despite all the reform that you're suggesting, Jacob, I really, I'm really spe- skeptical about um, Saudi Arabia really going through changes. I mean, that's best. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying any of this will happen. I'm, I'm, I'm talking best case, but honestly, it's so hard to talk about Middle East politics because it is such a, a hodgepodge of intervention and colonialism and religious fanaticism and yeah it's always been that way it's, it's hard to talk about it i mean I'll, i i just hope when, when when Biden tries to input his decisions on the middle east policy i honestly hope it doesn't fall into the same traps as obama did and i and and given that he has tony blinken i think i think he'll be in better hands than john Kerry. i would go as far as to say that the obama administration wasn't exactly great with the middle east I mean, they did try, but... Yeah, well, everybody tries. Uh, We'd like to welcome Emilio Marin, uh, an Austrian national who's come to be our first international guest on the podcast today. Emilio, welcome to the show. Hi, um, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. So our first question for you is, what are your overarching general thoughts about the past presidential election that has just occurred? Uh, That's a great question. Um, It was a very controversial um, election, as you, of course, know, but also it was watched with a lot of tension from Europe. And I actually, I checked the news every few hours to see if there was any new information on who it won because it does affect Europe in a great manner, actually the entire world, as the US is the maybe the um, most powerful nation on the planet at the moment. And Trump and Biden are very different candidates, and especially also in regard to foreign policy, which maybe in earlier years, Democrats and Republicans didn't have such a strong difference in their um, policies with foreign nations. But in this case, this is it's a huge difference, um, especially regarding the EU, Russia. Um, so we did watch that with a lot of. We were very anxious about how the election would go, and I, I think it is actually very sad um, that the current president is, did not accept his defeat. 
because we had a very similar situation here a few years ago with our presidential election, which is not quite as important as the American one because here the president doesn't have an, like as much power because we also have a chancellor. But it was a similar situation because the party, which is the very right-wing party, was against a very left-wing party. And they already stated before that if they lose, they're going to um, say the election was fraud. And they did, and we had to um, vote a second time, which was a great hustle and actually... Um, not really in the democratic spirit, because no matter who you support, I believe you have to accept that if the majority or how it works in the American system with the electoral college, that this is the way it works. And if you lose, you lose. And yeah, I feel like politicians especially should accept that. Um, I personally am very glad that Biden won, even though he was not my first choice as the democratic candidate. But it is, for me personally, um, a better choice than Trump. What is your uh, general political ideology? Um, it's it's hard to categorize because I'm, um, especially here, we have a different view on things. I know that um, in America, you see a lot of things from a um, more right wing perspective, um, because we here are socialists mainly. And that is not a, like not all Americans agree with um, this concept. I would categorize myself or you would probably categorize me as a socialist. Um, I don't have a very like very strong ideology on everything, but a few points such as how to handle with a refugee crisis, which was very important in Austria, especially in the past few years. I do have a great, a strong stance on that. And, in my country, um, the parties that represent my opinions best are actually the Green Party and the uh, Socialist Party because they have a more humane approach to these issues and they also um, believe that climate change is an important issue, which especially for us young people um, seems to be a very um, important issue at the time. So I'm going to go with Socialists on this one. If at all, how do you think the last four years under Trump has affected Austria and really Europe's perception of the United States? And uh, European-American relations? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. Um, I believe that because in the last few years in Europe, there's a lot of, been a lot of change. And especially now, don't know if you're up to date with these things, but for example, in Poland, there's been new laws regarding abortion, um, which makes any kind of abortion illegal, even if it is rape or if the child would be severely deformed and could not survive birth. And there's also been a, like a shift to the right in like um, in many countries, Turkey, um, Hungary, and also the Brexit. And I think that is that was majorly influenced by Trump winning. Because he is a key, like America is a key player, and there's a lot of people that listen to what he says and are influenced by the president of the United States. And he has managed, and that is something he does well, to influence the media and the um, masses. And a man with that much outreach, um, I, I am sure that he has influenced, especially to right shift. And I mean, he has very good, he had very good relationships with Boris Johnson and supported the Brexit on many levels. 
and supported Russia and he left the Paris Climate Agreement and he stepped back from NATO and um, the arms deal. So these are all things that have majorly impacted um, a shift to the right, especially also in Europe, which usually have a very close relationship um, to the US. What do you think um, now that uh, there's going to be uh, President Biden, what, what would you want him to do in regards to U.S.-European-Austrian relations? Um, I would hope for him to uh, reinstate the good relationship with the European Union that was um, uh, in state before because it is important to work across borders, across continents, and especially because the U.S. is going to be a very important player in the Brexit negotiations. And until now with Trump, these were very, very UK-focused um, support. And I believe that is not what is the best for the world economy because um, the EU is a strong community and the UK leaving had a great impact. And I, be- I would want Biden to be a key player in the negotiations for a Brexit deal, which is even now under construction because a hard Brexit would have horrible consequences. Um, for example, the island, Ireland, Northern Ireland, these borders, um, the trade with the European Union, the trade with America um, and the US. But I think Biden's going to involve himself because he, is, he has Irish roots. So I think this is an important issue to him as well. So you, want, you would want the U.S. to be a mediator of sorts. Yes, um, a mediator. And I would like the relationship um, between Europe and the U.S. to go stronger and a more, more bonding and more of a dialogue. There should be more of a dialogue between the countries because I, I feel like at the moment after Trump presidency and also during the, the COVID situation, there hasn't been as much dialogue as there should be. Because it is always easier if there is a united front to deal with a crisis. And that's a problem in Europe um, because there's no united front against this. But I feel like if there was one, one strategy and we would work together closely with the US, which has great research facilities, and Europe, which has also great research facilities, then this could be a situation, this situation could be handled much better than it is at the moment. Moving on to COVID, with with Europe currently seeing a surge in COVID cases at the time of recording a second wave, what do you think of your government's response to the pandemic since March? I believe Austria didn't do a terrible job. I must say that. I am glad to live in this country. We have a great healthcare system. We have free healthcare for everyone. And that is important. And that was crucial, actually. What I believe was done wrong was everything regarding the non-medical medical aspect. Because um, I personally am a student, so that is the closest experience I have with online school, uh, homeschooling, and also the economy. I feel like in the time between the first wave and now, because now we have a second lockdown in Austria for the past few weeks, there hasn't been much of innovation um, going on in these areas 
I feel like the people just went on a summer holiday on a vacation and just forgot about COVID. And I would have wanted them to think of a more intricate plan for schools, for the economy, and not just um, have the first lockdown after the first wave and then wait the entire summer and then be like, ah, the cases are up again, because that was a gradual process. It was not like from one day to the other, the cases were booming. And then they decided now to do a second lockdown. And I think with gradual measures, it could have been done much better than with these peaks in hard measures uh, instead of having um, like a soft lockdown, for example, for a longer period of time. Are certain aspects of the virus politicized in Austria, just like in the US, we have the politicization of mass wearing. Do you have an equivalent of that in Austria? Um, at the moment, not as much, to be honest, because we don't have any elections going on. Um, our last election was in Vienna, and that was COVID was not really politicized because even though the parties are very different um, and disagree on a lot of things, in this particular case, which I was very glad, they actually worked closely together to find a solution. And even though I'm not happy with everything that happened, I am actually very glad that they managed to communicate with each other. And that is why the the virus was not really as politicized as it was in the US, because I, I followed a few, um, a few debates. Um, it is a great topic there with masks and and uh, all of these things and whether it's real or not, that is not really an issue as much here as it is in the US. And I'm very glad about that because the people do take it serious. Not as serious maybe as um, they should, but um, they accept that they have to take measures and do things differently in their private life. And I think that is the, the greatest part of our population. Has the Austrian economy, has the European economy as a whole, have they been hit as hard? Are they, are they, are they, are they has the economic fallout from COVID gotten worse in Austria as, much, as bad as it has in the United States? Or are there other measures in Austria that have taken that have lessened, have, that have lessened the blow? Um, I, I am not an economic expert and this is not my field of expertise, but I believe that at the moment it is not as bad as you'd expect. But I think the real blow is going to come after this situation is handled. Because at the moment there's a lot of money being pumped into all different areas. For example, in um, uh, for the food um, sector, all the restaurants are getting, I think, up to 80% of their revenue paid by the state um, and smaller shops for, I don't know, um, I mean, grocery shops have opened, but like electronic shops or things like that, that are closed at the moment or um, play, uh, other kinds of shops, um, clothing items, stuff like that. Um, they get 20 to 60% of their revenue paid by the state. So it is okay at the moment. And there's something they call the shirt term work, which means um, that all employees um, get 80% of um, their regular payment per month. And the state actually pays the employer um, from those 80%, I think, um, 40%. 
and they do the work from home and do less hours, but they do get paid. So it is a good system and a good solution for the moment. I cannot say what the impact will be long-term. I do not think it will be um, good, to be honest. I think there's going to be a recession soon because it's not possible to pump so much money into the economy without actually having a lot of sales and things like that going on. But I think the situation in Europe is more stable at the moment than in the U.S., or at least in Austria. Emilio, do you um, have anything you would like to say, a message you'd like to say to our listeners out there? Um, yeah, actually, I do, because um, it is a, a time of controversy, and it has been for a couple of years now. And I believe that the only way um, to solve this, all issues regarding this at the moment, is with dialogue. Because especially with fake news and what has been going on in the US in particular with this election and the last election, there's been a, a great gap between people. There's been the left and the right. And um, I think that only through dialogue that this, this, like, this gap can be closed. And I, I had a beautiful story and I read up on it um, a week ago or so. Um, it was a man, an, um, an Afro-American man, who decided to meet up with KKK members. And he met up with them. He interviewed them. He, he actually wrote a book about the roots of racism. And he talked to them and he befriended them over years. And they left the KKK. They, those were like um, members. They were leaders and of the KKK who were like, real believers and real racists and he managed through dialogue and through talking to them to convince them of leaving and of changing their ideology and it's not about telling someone you're wrong you're stupid this is horrible what you're doing for example like with fake news saying you're stupid for not believing in climate change or um you're an idiot for do for believing in climate change but it's about dialogue because like this you'll never solve the situation you'll just have two groups that hate each other and believe that the other person is just wrong. And I think only by talking to each other can you find a, a compromise maybe or a solution that will fit for everyone because there's not a liberal America and a right-wing America. Uh, there, there's one United States and it's the same here in Europe. And I think that's also important for transatlantic yeah, relationships. Um, that's all the questions we have. Emilio, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate your insight. Uh, Joshua, any, anything else? Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, Emilio. Uh, you're our first international guest on the podcast, and it really gives us a new perspective on, you know, America and the American way of life. So thank you so much for contributing to that. We really appreciate we really Well, appreciate I'm that. glad and anytime. It was a fun experience and I'm glad I could be part of this. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero Sock Politics. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And send us any and all questions regarding the news or politics, because your questions make the show. Thanks for joining us and we hope to see you next time.